After Thanksgiving, it's traditionally known as Easter season, and so whether you like it or not, things are starting to go in that direction with all the music and other things also. And what's interesting to me about this time of year is this is a natural time for everybody to think about what is the reason for the season. And for Christians especially, I know how this goes, uh, but for Christians, we usually ask some version of this question, what child is this? You know, so we maybe have that song in mind. We, we think about this child being born in Bethlehem, and we really have to wrap our minds around this. What does this mean? Who is this? So Christians do this naturally, but I, I think also in the broader context of the world, even people who don't believe in Jesus, at least the question passes through their mind. Who is this Jesus that, that we celebrate or that people commemorate with a special holiday? Who is he? Who is he? Well, as you look through the Bible, you see four different ways to begin to answer this question because there are four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. These aren't four contradictory accounts, but rather we see four different people from four different perspectives, tell the story of who Jesus is and why he came. And today, as we start a new series, I think it's helpful just to have a glimpse of these four different approaches and why it is we're focusing on Matthew for this series. So the way Matthew started is he looked at a genealogy through Joseph, which if you've ever tried to read through the New Testament and you just opened up to Matthew and you started reading, you probably skipped the first half of the chapter because all it is is talking about Abraham was the father of him, the father of him, the father of him, the father of him. And you can't, exp you can't even, like, in your mind um, pronounce half of these names. And so you just kind of, okay, whatever, you kind of skip over that, and you just get to the part where Jesus is being born. And I get it. I totally get it. So anyway, that's how Matthew starts his, his account of Jesus' life, and we'll talk more about him in a moment. Mark is a little different. We think that Mark got most of his details from the apostle Peter, who followed Jesus for three years. So Mark starts with the baptism of Jesus. Like the first thing Peter would have heard about, hey, this guy named Jesus was baptized and heaven hope opened up and word about this spread. And so Peter is like, oh, that's the beginning of the story. And that's where Mark started his account. Luke was a little different also. He went through and he basically talked to a bunch of eyewitnesses and he put all of their stories together and said, here is an orderly account of Jesus of Nazareth the Son of God. So if you're more into that storytelling kind of mode, Luke might be your guy. Then I love this last one. John, by the time he wrote his, apostle, his, his gospel, he's an older man. He's just, like most older people do, he just got to the point. He's just like, hey, everybody, Jesus is God. Like he just gets it out there, and the reader can do with that what they will, but he gets straight to the point. Jesus is God. So for the sake of this series, we're going to look at Matthew. The one that's probably the the least attractive when it comes to telling the story of Jesus. But I'm just going to pause for a moment to tell you why Matthew began his account this way and why it still brings value to us today. Like I said, each four of these different people had a different viewpoint and a unique audience that they were speaking to. Matthew's audience was mostly first century Jews. And the Jews were very zealous about their Old Testament scriptures. 
In these scriptures, God gave prophecies and promises about a savior that would come through the Jewish people. A descendant of Abraham would come and he would be a new kind of a king with a new kind of a forever kingdom. And they didn't quite understand how all this would work, especially as they were being subjugated by Rome in the first century. But they knew that someday a king would come greater than David. And so the first thing that they were looking for is this savior needs to be a descendant of Abraham. If he's not a Jew, then he can't, he has no right to make that claim. And they also said he has to be a descendant of David because that's what their scriptures told them. So Matthew knew right away in order to speak to his Jewish audience, he had to prove to them that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom he's claiming is the son of God, the Messiah, he is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. But in the back of his mind, as Matthew is making this genealogy, I think he also had this going through his head. He said, there's going to be some people who probably don't know or don't care about this genealogy. And maybe he even had in mind people who would live centuries down the the road and they wouldn't have any concept of Jewish genealogy. And so one thing that we see him do is, is really interesting. Matthew, who, by the way, is a tax collector, very good at legal laws and regulations. He understood the importance of getting details right. Matthew, as he recorded this genealogy of Jesus, proving he's a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham, he knows what he needs to include. This person fathered this person. They fathered this person. Down the line, down the line, Jewish legal law followed the father. And so starting or focusing on Joseph as the legal father of Jesus, he traces everything down to David and ultimately down to Abraham. He knows the the way to do this. But Matthew had some deviations in his well-thought-out, well-proposed genealogy. There are some deviations where he added some details he didn't need to add. And the point is what you see on the screen. Matthew presented a family tree filled with brokenness. This isn't what we normally do, is it? Um, Whenever I'm talking to people about my background and my family, first of all, I don't really know my great-grandparents, like, at all. Like, I could look up their names. Honestly, uh, yeah, that's kind of too far. But I do know my grandparents very well. I did know them. And as I think about my grandparents and the legacy they left, I automatically think about my grandma and grandpa Meyer. Uh, My grandpa, Art Meyer, was also in the ministry, and he spent a lot of his ministry uh, serving at a a congregation, a, a school in East Fork, Arizona. And a lot of his work meant that he interacted with the Apache Indian Reservation and the people in that area. And something that I'm proud of, and when I talk about my ancestry, like this is part of my story, my uncle, my my grandpa, Art Meyer, was so respected by the Apache people that they made him an honorary member of their tribe. And they sent him a formal letter with this acknowledgement and this honor. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's my family. That's, That's who I am. Maybe as you think through your family ancestry, there's some people that pop out in your mind, people that you want to just slow down and talk about their story a little bit. And then there are people where you might just mention a name and move on. 
Jesus had these in his family genealogy also. People who did great things, like King David. Let's just start with King David, the greatest king Israel ever had. So many stories of victory and honor and valor. But Matthew brought out the one story that was most embarrassing and shameful. And we'll get there later in the series. Matthew, as he writes this genealogy, he, he almost teases the Jewish audience. He, he pokes at them and he says, you're looking for something awesome and amazing? Don't look in the genealogy of Jesus. And here's where we're going to go with the entire series. Well, why would Matthew focus on the embarrassing, shameful moments of Jesus' ancestors? Well, here's what we're going to see. The kind of people that Jesus came from were ultimately the kind of Jesus people that Jesus came for. Matthew could have highlighted how there were a lot of righteous people, good people who did great things in, his, in, in, in Jesus' genealogy, and that's true. But all those people were also terribly broken. And maybe Matthew as a tax collector, someone who had been despised, and maybe he had his own past that he wasn't proud of. Maybe he's seeing himself as he highlights the brokenness from the people in Jesus' ancestry. So could you just plant this in your mind as you read through Matthew, as we read through Matthew together, there's going to be a lot of shameful, embarrassing, disgusting things that Jesus' ancestors did. And some of them are going to connect with you more than I know. But just remember, the kind of people Jesus came from are the kind of people he came for. So let's get started. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here's how Matthew begins. Here's how he should have began if he was just following the legal, strict way to mark a person's ancestry. He should have said this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's making this claim. Now he has to give the supporting evidence. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And this is what he could have written just to get straight to the point. But let's look at a couple details he added that he didn't need to add. First of all, he said, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. There's no legal reason that and his brothers needs to be part of this manuscript. And yet Matthew added this in there as a mark in Jesus' genealogy. And if you know your Old Testament history a little bit, you know that Judah had 11 brothers One of them was very well known because he takes up about 10 chapters in the book of Genesis. And this well-known brother, Joseph. Joseph, whom Judah decided to sell as a slave. Kids, don't get any ideas. I know we're hot off Thanksgiving. (laughs) Judah, the, 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 the brothers decided we need to get rid of Joseph. They were jealous of him. He was the favorite child. He, they, they didn't like him. So some of the brothers decided that they wanted to kill him, but Judah said, no, why should we just get rid of him? Let's make some money off of him at least. So it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph as a slave, and they sent him away. Now, like I said, so much of Genesis, you've got about 10 chapters that are just talking about the story of Joseph and what Joseph did after he was sold as a slave. And ultimately, Joseph became second in command of all of Egypt. That's, it's an incredible story. But Matthew draws us back in. He says the most important part in Genesis isn't about Joseph. 
Joseph would mean nothing if it were not for Judah. Because you can't get to Abraham if you don't go through Judah. The ancestry of Jesus went through Judah. Joseph was a supporting actor. He was an important part of helping things progress. It was an important part of God's plan. But the Savior came through Judah. And then he goes on. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And already you see why two, because they were actually twins. Perez and Zerah were, yeah, Perez and Zerah were, were twin, twin brothers. Um, but then he also adds their mother was Tamar. You don't need to add that detail. You could have just said Judah, the father of Perez. But Matthew goes on and says, hey, remember that story? His mother, their mother, was Tamar. Just in case you forgot, their mother was Tamar. And for Old Testament Jews who really understood their scriptures, there's an entire chapter in Genesis devoted to this story that would be very unchristian for me to read to you because of the gruesome and vivid details that it unfolds. So I invite you this week, if you want to, read Genesis chapter 38 in all of its entirety, and you'll see Judah and Tamar and the really gross, disgusting things that happen as part of this story. But Matthew pokes the people. He says, of all the good things we could have talked about with Abraham, and the way that Judah, later in his life, he kind of comes around, but instead he says, no, we need to acknowledge that this Judah and Tamar did something horrible. So Genesis 38 is where we see this story. I'm going to give you a version that I would feel comfortable telling my fifth grader, okay? So that's my promise. That's my goal for you today. Um, the other thing to recognize about Genesis 38 is how it unfolds in this whole story of what God is doing. Genesis 37 is where Judah sells his brother as a slave. And then Genesis 38 says what happens after this. Now, just imagine if you did something permanent to change the life of someone that you're related to, someone you're supposed to love, it would probably haunt you. And so we see the same thing from Judah. Um, right after Joseph is sold, we see the story of Judah unfold, and the, the writer um, of Genesis, Moses, he, he gives us this long story of Judah, basically the rest of his life, like what happened to him. And what we know is that after Joseph was sold, Judah moves away from his brothers. He goes off on his own. We're not sure for how long, but we know it was for a long time. And Judah finds a wife. All we know about her is that she's called in Genesis 38. She's called the daughter of Shua. And I'm sure that's what their wedding invitation looked like. Come to the wedding of Judah and the daughter of Shua. But they had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And these were the three sons they had. It was a family. And so already you see, this is a long time, Genesis 38. Judah gets married. He has a family. And now in 38, also we see they are getting old enough. These uh, three sons are getting old enough to have families of their own. So first, the oldest is married. Um, he's married to a woman named Tamar, whose name will be coming up quite frequently today. So Ur and Tamar, they are married but all that Genesis 38 says is that Ur was an evil, wicked person, and so he died. We're not sure what he did, why he did it, or how he died, but we know that Ur is gone, and here's the weird part. You're going to love this. According to Jewish tradition and Jewish law, they had something called the Leveret Law. Don't try to invoke this. 
the Leverett law basically went like this. If you have a situation like this where a woman loses her husband before she can have any children, it is the duty of the next oldest son to take that husband's place so that she can have a child. So the brother-in-law is called to step in as the the de facto husband to help this woman have a son or have a child and so carry on the family line. And this would be considered the new brother or the, the first brother's child. So Leverett Law, it was designed to keep households going and keep family, family names intact. And so that's what happened here also. Once Ur was gone, Onan came in. Now, Onan and Tamar were officially brought together, and I'm not going to get into the details because it's gross, but Onan doesn't want to father a child that will only be known as his brother's son. So Onan was also evil. He dies. And now Judah, as he, as he looks at what's going on, he starts to make some connections. Here's what he does. Verse, 30, verse um, 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, I want you to live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For, he thought, he might die too. This woman is a black widow. He may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Now just imagine this. I don't want you to marry my son yet. He's a little too young. He's got some growing up to do. He's not ready for the responsibility. Go back home. Live as a widow. What does it mean to live as a widow? It means you don't get married again. You are grieving. You're saving yourself. You're waiting. I want you to go home, go to your dad's house, live in his basement, and just stay there until we say my son is ready. And then after... A long time. How long? I don't know. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, also died. So now we got this weird family dynamic where we've got widowed, widowered Judah. We've got his son, Shelah. We've got his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But Judah is not letting the Leverett law play out the way it should, and we're kind of in a stalemate. And it... It's weird. It's awkward. Now, if you're Judah, I'm sure you can, you, you've got your reasons for doing this. You, you have your son's best interests in mind, and you're just doing what you think is right, and maybe we could make a case for, you know, maybe someday he was still planning to do this, but it's been such a long time, it's clear he's not going to do what he's supposed to do. So here's what we see from Judah and Tamar. Number two, Judah neglected his responsibility, and Tamar Paid the price. By law, she was supposed to be given this other son so that she could have some semblance of a family, even though she was still grieving the loss of her first husband. By law, she was entitled to receive certain things, but Judah was withholding it from her. Judah neglected his responsibility, and Tamar had to pay the price. Months, years, we we don't know, of living with her father as a widow. Perpetual grieving. And some of you have experienced this on one side or the other. 
Maybe you can think back to an earlier time in your life where you neglected your responsibility and someone else paid the price. And it haunts you because you know the price was high. And maybe you could or couldn't see what you were doing in that moment, but now as you reflect back, it haunts you. You wish you could go back and rewrite that and change it and do better, but you can't. And maybe some of you are in a place where you can't even make the payment back. Uh, Maybe a relationship has just been severed, or maybe even the person that this happened with is no longer with us. There can be times in our life where we neglect our responsibility and other people pay the price. And those things, sometimes the price can be very high. Um, Some of you, maybe it was a desire that you just went after and went after, and it didn't matter who you hurt to get what you wanted. And someone paid a very high price that you can't pay back. Some of you have been on the receiving end, and we'll talk about Tamar in a moment, but you've been on the other side of this where someone extracted a very high price from you that you had to pay. Now you're stuck with it. So you think your family's messed up. Just look at Jesus' genealogy at his ancestors. Now we got this really awkward situation where Judah and Tamar are in this weird situation and it's not being resolved anytime soon. But could you just hold on, put, put a bookmark here, put a footnote that the kind of people Jesus came from, including Judah, are the kind of people he came for. And if you, if you find yourself relating with Judah, that means Jesus came for people like you. So let's see how Tamar played this out, and then we'll show how Jesus ultimately brings resolution to all of this. So as we go on, Judah had to recover from his grief. And when he recovered, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. So... Uh, It's just giving us some details that are going to help us make sense of the story. Basically, he's getting back to work. His time of grieving is done. Now he's getting back to work, seeing that his business is going well, and seeing how things are going. And meanwhile, meanwhile, here's what happens. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, still grieving, perpetual grieving. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. That was her intent. And then she sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. And she had a plan. Because she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Now, the rest of this I can't read for you. I would be a bad Christian if I would read the rest of Genesis 38 to you. So I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. The reason she put a veil over herself and the reason she dressed up like this was um, twofold. Number one, she wanted to look attractive. And number two, she wanted to disguise who she really was. And so as Judah was walking by, he sees her, doesn't know who she is. But based on the way she is dressed, he concludes that she is offering herself for a price, if you know what I mean. So Judah comes up to her, not knowing who she is, and he says, hey, let's spend some time together. Let's spend the night together. And she says, what are you going to give me? Judah says, well, I don't have it on me now, but I've I've got this great business, a lot of sheep, a lot of livestock, and so I'm going to give you a, a young goat. 
And so she says, okay, well, you don't have it now, so I'm going to need some collateral. This is my version, just shortened version. I'm going to need some collateral. And he's, she, he says, okay, well, what can I give you? Like, I don't have my driver's license on me. Um, she said three things. Give me your ring, your signet ring, which as a business person, if you're going to sign any contracts or prove that you are who you say you are, that the signet ring is proof of who he is. It's basically their driver's license. Um, give me that, that thing that you're wearing, and also give me your staff that you've got in your hand. And then when you give me the animal, we'll trade back and everything will be good. So Judah says, fair, that's fine. So he hands over his ring, he hands over what he's wearing, and he hands over his staff. Tamar takes those things, and then they spend the night together. And she becomes pregnant through her father-in-law. So where are we getting at here? I'm not in a place where I can say how wrong Tamar was in doing these things, but I can tell you she was not innocent. And here's where this connects with us. Tamar, she was an innocent victim. She did nothing to deserve the price that she had to pay. She was an innocent victim. But she was an innocent victim who became not so innocent. And this is something that we have to take and apply to ourselves too because I'm sure there are going to be a lot of times in your life where you are the innocent victim. And by innocent victim, I mean something bad happens to you that someone else shouldn't have done and you did nothing to deserve it or warrant it. Maybe you were attacked, maybe you were abused, maybe something was stolen from you. You are just the innocent victim. You did not deserve it in the least bit. But while you might be an innocent victim at the beginning, there are ways to handle the situation that make you not so innocent. And here's where there's a gray area because it is, there are situations where a Christian can sue people and start a lawsuit. and There's a time and a place for that. But that stuff can also lead into a place that's not good. And if you're meeting with your growth group this week, that's one of the questions. Like, how do you know when you're trying to, you know, get justice and make sure that bad things don't happen to other people, when does it become a not-so-innocent thing? Where is that line, and how do you determine if, if you've crossed that? What I know is that when you find your identity as an innocent victim— you will only see the world around you as, things to get, as, as a place to get things from. You will seek justice. You'll try to get even. And you'll just look for ways that you can manipulate the system for your own benefit. That's the mindset of a victim. Again, there are innocent victims in this world, but we have to be careful that those don't lead us to do not-so-innocent kinds of of things. I don't know where Tamar falls on this. I know that she was entitled to some sort of justice, but I don't think the way she sought it was good, was innocent, or was right. So now, what do we've got? Well, we've got a father-in-law who basically forced his daughter to be, daughter-in-law to, to be a widow for life. We've got a daughter-in-law who fought back and gave him a dose of his own medicine and found the, the offspring she was looking for in a way that he never imagined. And now things get even worse, if, you, if, if it's possible. Things got a little bit worse. So about three months later, Judah was told 
your daughter, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, the one who's supposed to be living at her, at her father's house as a widow, she sold herself. Again, I'm skipping some details. She sold herself, and now she is pregnant. Now, how should Judah respond? Wait, she's three months pregnant. See, what, what he should have done is think back to his own life and the, the own sins that he is fully in charge of. But instead, he gives a very gruesome order. And I'm not sure how it played out back then, if he would have to go through a court or what, but he get, basically gave the order, I want you to bring Tamar out here and I want you to put her to death in a very painful way. And he gave a very specific command. I'll let you read about it in Genesis 38. Kill her. Well, if that isn't hypocritical, I don't know what is. Is not the sentence that you give on someone else also supposed to apply to you? So they bring Tamar out. And as she was brought out, next verse, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And so she added, see if you recognize whose seal, this ring this is, and whose cord, and whose staff these are. Do these, do these look familiar? Do you know who they are? And at that, she said, gotcha. <laughs> at this Judah recognized who he was. You ever have those moments? Moments where you recognize who you really are? I mean, you try to portray a good look on the outside and you look respectable and honest and all these things, and most of the time you are, but there's those moments that are out there. And there's evidence in your past of Evidence that you're not the person that maybe you think you are. Maybe there's a video out there, or a text message, or an email. Or someone else has a story that they've been holding on to. And there's this moment where Judah realized who he was. And so he simply said to her, she, she's not perfect. She's done some pretty sketchy things, but she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. These are Jesus' ancestors. And Matthew saw fit that as he recorded the ancestry, that he gave special note and attention to Judah and Tamar, from whom Jesus would be born. But what we see from this from Judah, from Tamar, they're both guilty of some things. What I know is that neither could condemn the other. Judah could not say, you deserve death, and she couldn't point the finger at him either because of what she had done. They're kind of at a stalemate. Neither could condemn the other. And that's where the story of Judah and Tamar leaves. Both had learned a lesson, but neither one was right. And here's where I love how Matthew, as, as he brings this out of Jesus' genealogy, he does this not just in a way to embarrass the Jewish people for their history or their past, but he does this in a way to highlight the beauty of who Jesus would be. 
You see, Judah, Judah withheld his last son because he was afraid he would die. Yet God was willing to give his one and only son, knowing full well that he would be the sacrifice for a world that was broken. Tamar was an innocent victim who became not so innocent. Yet Jesus, the Lamb of God, though he was perfectly righteous and innocent in every way, did not lose an ounce of his innocence, even as he was being wrongly executed on a Roman cross. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. so that we might become what we were not. Forgiven and loved. The kind of people Jesus came from are the kind of people he came for. And so if you've had a moment in your past where you, through your negligence or through your actions, you put a big price on someone else that they had to pay, or if you responded to a situation where you were an innocent victim, but you responded in a way that was not so innocent and it just made things messier, Jesus is for you. And I'm sure Judah and Tamar, for the rest of their lives, they were wishing, could we just go back and rewrite that? Much like perhaps you go back to certain moments in your mind and you say, I wish I could go back and rewrite the way I did that. I wish I could rewrite the way I approached my first marriage wish I could rewrite the way that I parented my kids or failed to parent them. I wish I could rewrite the way that I interacted at work and the way that I came across the people. So many things we wish we could rewrite. But as Matthew writes the genealogy, what the beautiful thing is there is nothing to rewrite because God redeemed their story. God made it perfect by bringing something good out of it. And that's what I'll leave you with today. Stop trying to rewrite what God has already redeemed from your life. There's a way to balance this, where you are sorrowful over your mistakes and sins from the past, and you are repentant of them, but at the same time, you rejoice that God has redeemed that. And he can bring something good out of that. You balance this, this idea where you acknowledge sins of the past and you are sorrowful for them and you do what you can to make things right with the person or the people that you have done things wrong to. But at the same time, you thank God that Jesus came to be what you were not. The kind of people he came from are the kind of people he came for. And your story has been redeemed. It has been given its value back because of the perfect way that Jesus fills it. So as you go out this week, this will be something for you to think about and navigate. As you go back to moments of guilt or regret, do you find yourself trying to rewrite them and rewrite them and rewrite them and you wish you could go back? What if you just stopped and thanked God for redeeming your past, bringing something good out of it that only he can do? and find rest, and find hope that the kind of people Jesus came from are the kind of people he came for. People like me, and people like you. Let's close today with a prayer, and then we'll have one more song. 
Dear Father, thank you for your love and your forgiveness. Thank you for people like Judah and Tamar. Though they were not perfect by any means, you found a way to redeem their story and you brought something immeasurably good out of it. Thank you that Matthew was guided by your spirit to make these notes in the genealogy of Jesus, your son. And while there are a lot of good people that did good things, you want us to know that there were still plenty of of bad things that people did that haunted them. And so for, for those who are listening to the message, would you comfort them in knowing that they are not alone? You seek out people who have broken, haunting pasts, and you redeem them through your son, Jesus. He came to be what we are not. He was ready to give and sacrifice. He was a truly innocent victim. And yet he didn't leverage anything for himself, but he became all things for us. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.